Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, First uh, Kings chapter one. We're starting a new book. Good night to be here for the first time. Uh, we're gonna pick up. It starts First Kings chapter one, verse one. Says now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants. You're laughing already. <laughs> he was a little old man, and he couldn't. He got chills at night, and that's not funny. That's really sad. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought out for our lord the king. Let her stand before the king. Let her care for him. Let her lie in your bosom that our lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a lovely woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag the Shudamite, and brought her to the king, and the young woman was very lovely. And she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. People get tripped up on this. For obvious reasons, David struggled with sexual infidelity throughout his life. It looks like there's something here, but the writer's really trying to go out of the way in verse 4. The king didn't know her that way. This wasn't about that. In fact, this is an ancient treatment for old people. As you get older, your circulation starts to go away. They didn't have heating systems. It does get cold at night in Israel. He gets cold. He gets the shivers. And this was a very practical way to help old guys with the shivers. It's also creepy as heck from our modern viewpoint. Uh, but the writer's really trying to go out of there, I think, even like speaking into the future, like this wasn't a case of David ending his life in that kind of infidelity. So originally, uh, the book of Kings, we'll actually get some context here first. First Kings, Second Kings used to be one big scroll. It got split up later in Jewish tradition, but it was one book. You'll notice that it starts with the word now, almost like we're picking up right where we left off in Samuel, because First and Second Samuel was also one book. Two other examples of that, you know First and Second Chronicles used to be one book, and Ezra Nehemiah used to be one book. So we have four of those situations where today they're split into two, but back in the day these were the big thick scrolls that went with the collection. It covers a period of about 400 years, from 950 B.C., to 550 BC. So as we go through Kings, and I'll say, oh, this was about 700 years before Jesus. Actually, when we hit Kings, I shouldn't be saying about. I should be doing my homework and getting you exact dates. Because as we start dating things now, we date them from the kingship of David. So we actually can get right down to the year and the month on most of the events going forward in history. Like this is really frustrating in, Ge in Genesis because it's like somewhere around this time and Judges is still that way. But as we get into Kings, if you take Kings and Chronicles together, you get a pretty refined timeline. The Jewish people add that to world history. Like we suddenly get dates and times. The story of Kings goes through periods in Israel's history that are periods of both good kings and bad kings. They go from evil to good. And Israel, as a general sense, starts out with Solomon, chapters 1 through 10, at the height of the kingdom. Like, this is what a kingdom should look like with a human king. 
But then throughout the book of Kings, it's going to, and first Kings and second Kings, it's just going to keep spiraling down. There's four great kings that are models of godly kings in the two kings. Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, Josiah. In between each of them, they don't tend to parent their kids very well. So the kingship has those four godly kings, but the nation as a whole keeps going the wrong direction. And the kings that play to sin get along with the people a little better, but the country has more problems and gets into more turbulence. So kings will handle those uh, things. The difference between kings and chronicles. Why do they tell a lot of the same stories? Kings focuses from First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings focuses on the entire nation of Israel. So when the nation splits after Solomon, kings will cover the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, where the book of Chronicles zooms in on just Judah, the southern kingdom. And it really doesn't pay attention to Israel because they're clearly not in the line of Messiah by the time the Chronicles gets put together. So Chronicles is, and Kings, uh, Kings is more of a history. Chronicles is more of a how did we end up in Babylon and what happened to our nation. So it follows a slightly different line. 40 years of Solomon, chapters 1 through 10. Chapter 11 is where things go wrong at the end of Solomon's reign. Chapters 12 through 22, Israel divides and becomes weak as a nation. So that's the story of kings. Most of the prophetic books that we're going to have, so you got the histories and then you get the prophecies. Biblically, they're split up. But when we were doing Samuel, did you catch that almost every week I was referencing a psalm? Because David writes the psalms in particular periods of history. The same thing's true with the prophets. And as we start moving forward, the prophets pop up. So as Israel divides and becomes less and less godly, God's prophets become more and more prominent in the nation of Israel. Their recordings stay with the tabernacle, and they become part of the word of God during this period. So I'll be referencing these other prophets as we go through kings, because this is where that prophet would have done their thing. And that's important to remember as we get into the prophets that they, were, they spoke their prophecy within a historical context. So this is where Bible study gets kind of like you got to bounce around a little bit. The theme of this is that God sets them up the way they asked with a human king. Humans screw it up. So one argument is, well, how did Israel keep screwing up all the time if they had a good God? Because that same good God offers free will to his people. And the free will of humanity often degenerates over time, especially in civic settings. So the era of kings will fail, leaving us desperate for a, an eternal king, a king that can really do the job the right way. Because Solomon only lasted 40 years. So we need a king that's more eternal. It also shows the failure of the Mosaic priesthood. The priesthood doesn't stop this from happening. So though God gave the opportunity of a Mosaic priesthood, it degenerates into where the humans screw up on that, leaving God's people with this hope for we need an eternal high priest. We need a prophet. We need a priest. We need a king. We need that person to be eternal. And essentially, God has to come to earth himself to make that happen. So the Old Testament, it's kind of, I remember struggling with this when I first became a believer. Why do they keep screwing up when God's doing so much for them? And the answer is that that's what people do. We can see God operate in our lives and then keep screwing up. And Israel's no different from that. So it says, verse 1, now King David was old. These are his final years. He's 70-ish years old at this point. That's a few lifetimes for David, like, He's old, but he's also like been an athlete fighter his whole life. So if you know anything about athletics, it's hard on the body. So he's not just old, he's stricken with age, right? This isn't like Moses. Moses was vibrant until the day he died. 
But David's in a, you know, he's struggling. It's hard for, he's bedridden, as we're going to see in this chapter. It's interesting that the story of David in 2 Samuel ends with David handing off the kingship. And it doesn't tell this story. Because in 2 Samuel, that's about David and his kingship. And they don't want to remember this part of, you know, they're honoring him by not putting that here. But him being old is part of the story of Solomon. So this story gets included here because it's not indicative of David's leadership, but it is the origin story for Solomon. This is how Solomon got put on the throne. So it's important that he's bedridden and he's there. I hate to see David looking like this. Like, I kind of wish I didn't have to read that because I really like David. And I like the image of David as a vibrant king. So when you see old man David, that's kind of like, I don't know, that's kind of tough. And then they bring in this young woman that sounds kind of sketchy. Think of this like an in-home nurse or uh, an, an in-home caregiver. Like they're saying that he's old enough to where he kind of needs somebody to care for him. And in that list of things, it's that she's going to be before the king just meeting his needs, you know, and to let her care for him. She's a caregiver is what she is. In fact, the word that's used here, this medical treatment that's used, when Josephus talks about this part of the Jewish history, he actually uses the term physician in regards to Abishag the Sudamite. He calls her a physician. So they bring in a doctor to actually be an in-home doctor for the king. And of course, sleeping in the same bed sounds really creepy, but they make a point here that this isn't a sexual thing. This is literally, she's a bed warmer. And that's what she does. So it's important that she's not touched. Of course, when you think of Abishag the Shunammite, they do note twice that she's extremely beautiful. So I don't even know if I should sing it. But I can't think of Abishag the Shunammite without hearing Dave in my head. Dave Brown's in my head, and he's singing Abishag the Shunammite. She's really dynamite. And it just sticks in your head. And I hope that sticks in your head for the rest of your life now. But she had to be something because they searched the whole country for her. right? And it's interesting that there's this beautiful woman, and David actually handles and conducts himself with honor with her. Wasn't the case with Bathsheba but it is the case with Abishag the Shunammite. It's important that she's a virgin because clearly sleeping in a bed with a man would be a bad thing if she had a husband. That's adultery. And the fact that she's a virgin, the situation here would have been, and I get this from the Jewish histories, they brought her in as a virgin, and because she has this interaction with David, <clears throat> she's then kind of off limits for everybody else. So he's essentially taking her in as a concubine, and then for the rest of Abishag's life, Abishag the Shunammite, she, is really, she gets taken care of by the household of David. So Solomon would take on the responsibility. This gets to be really important as we go on with the chapter tonight. So she is, she is forevermore cared for by David's estate or by his household. So she's not to be given to another husband. So that's kind of sad at some level. But on the other hand, she gives a few years of service to David, and then she gets the rest of her life taken care of. That's not a bad trade in some senses. So all that said, David's fading out. That's the point of these verses. Not that he's in impropriety here, but that he's, he's fading out and he needs to have a caregiver. Um, verse 5, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Does this sound familiar? Because uh, Haggith had another son whose name was Absalom who did the exact same thing. So this guy's looking at his older brother, 2 Samuel 15, who got people to run before him, announced that he's a bigwig. He decided to put it on himself. 
This happens like when old people like are leaving the ministry because they're retiring. You'll get people that pop up and say, I will be the next person. And they just claim it instead of seeking the Lord. There's no evidence here that he seeks the Lord. He would be the next in line when it comes to age. But God so far, Deuteronomy 17, doesn't pick people by age or what the world says is next in line. He picks people by the heart. Saul and David are both picked by God. David was not the eldest son. He was the youngest. So that's never been something that God seems to be so concerned with. But this guy's the eldest son. His older brothers have been killed for the exact same behavior. And he's going to do the same thing. Verse 6. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. So he's a good looking guy. That's actually working against him. His father hasn't rebuked him. That's working against him. Ammon's dead, Absalom's dead. Chiliab gets mentioned, but it seems to evaporate. So maybe the third son in line is also, he's either died or he's just left the scene. And this guy says, I want to be king. And he, ex he exalts himself. That is to ignore God's will. To aspire to leadership is not a bad thing. To presume leadership is a bad thing. And in the Bible, we, we keep seeing this going bad for people that do it. 2 Samuel 28, and the afflicted people you will save, but your years are upon the, my eyes are upon the haughty that they may bring them down. David even said this on his deathbed. It was in his song. And I wonder if he's thinking of his kids that are kind of haughty and they think they're all that. Maybe humility would work better. So Kings especially shows the people that are chosen by God and they're lifted up by God. God gives strength to the king and he exalts the horn of his anointed. His father had not rebuked him. This is perhaps David's second big weakness. His one weakness is Bathsheba. His second weakness is that he just doesn't raise his kids. And he doesn't seem to do that biblically. Biblically speaking, the responsibility here, note that it doesn't say the father and mother had not rebuked him. It just says the father hasn't rebuked him. Biblically speaking, one of the roles of a father is to rebuke and pull their kids back into line when they're getting out of line. That responsibility never is put on the mother, biblically. It's always put on the father. So when a kid's out of control, and you see this a lot, of, we see this kind of play out statistically when you have a single-parent household. It, there tends to be kids that get out of line because there isn't a rebuke happening there or even in a divorce situation when neither parent wants to do the rebuking, that kids left to their own devices tend to grow up the wrong way. And kids will want what they want. So uh, what's interesting is that we have trouble as parents with spiritual correction. But physically, we have no problem with this idea at all. Because people are like, why, why do you need to rebuke kids? Or I'm never going to tell my kid they're wrong. We have family members that raise their kids this way. It hasn't gone well for them, <laughs> right? We, when teeth are out of line, what do we do? We throw braces on them and correct them even under pain. When you get a spine that's out of shape, we do corrective surgery on that. When we have a, a weird growth coming off, we don't have any problems at all with correcting us ourselves physically. right? Even when the hair gets ungainly, we just cut it with a scissors. Like We do all the time we correct things physically, but when it comes to spiritual correction, we got a kid with a crooked soul, we don't worry about straightening it out at all. And that can be a really dangerous situation. So part of this is on Adonijah, but verse 6, part of this is on David, that he didn't correct his son when he saw these crooked spiritual kind of traits. So let's, get, let's defend David a little bit. Jesse, remember, didn't even bring David to Samuel when he was a kid. So it's pretty clear that Jesse didn't think very much of David, not enough to even bring him before the king. 
So you wonder what kind of relationship Jesse and David actually had. Like, did David ever get to see good fathering? Because he doesn't seem to know how to do good fathering. And it's one of his big weaknesses. So distant connection at best with his own dad, distant connection at best with Adonijah, Ammon, Absalom. You wonder how Solomon came out like he did. And the only answer to that is Bathsheba. Like, clearly the mom had a role in this sort of, and maybe the mom stepped into that role and she corrected Solomon as he was growing up. So she took on that rebuking duty. Fathering as a whole, then, becomes kind of an art. Just because you're a good and a godly person doesn't mean you're going to be a good father. It's a different kind of set of skills. That idea that you do correct things when they're not right. Proverbs 29, 17, correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give you a delight for your soul. A godly son or daughter just gives delight to a parent. Honestly, they're just a blessing. I got two of them. Absolute blessing in my life when you get a kid that grows up and they're following the Lord on their own. It's a total blessing. So, verse 7. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah, top general, top priest, both looking to be on the new, uh, the new kingship. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, that's an odd name, Re and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. All prominent people looking at character instead of pride. Right? These, so you're splitting the nation between the godly people and there's no evidence that Adonijah, Joab, and uh, Abiathar consulted the Lord. If Abiathar's co-high priesting with Zadok, remember they're kind of a double high priest right now. Why did Abiathar not go to the Urim and the Thummim? Why didn't they consult the Lord? And part of it is they're just anxious for power and they're jumping into it. The mighty men, we know the Cherethites and the Pelethites are these people that have been with David since the beginning and they're going to follow what David says, even in this area. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and a fattened cattle by the stone of Zeholeth, which is by Enrogel, this is just outside Jerusalem. And he also invited his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah. That would be all the elders, all the bigwigs, all the fancy pants, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. So we have little to go on as to why he did or didn't invite these people. But as the story goes on, it becomes clear that Adonijah knew their preferences. And when he's starting to invite all of the elite to come to his fancy party, he's trying to establish his power network through the people that are important and big and elevated. And then you got these other people that aren't deemed that way, and they seem to be on the outskirts. This is kind of a direct threat to Solomon's life. If you're the only brother that doesn't get invited to the dinner, in the ancient world, that's a death sentence. Like if Adonijah becomes king, Solomon's on the outs because he never got the invitation. So he becomes then a threat to the kingdom. Why doesn't he invite Solomon? Why would it matter? And the answer to that is Solomon has already shown character. He's already, there's a, a known idea that David thinks Solomon should be king. And that's why you don't invite Solomon. He's not the popular one in the family. Zadok gets promoted by David. I'm just going through some of these names. Zadok was promoted by David and let he, Zadok was the one that carried the ark back to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. That's a pretty high honor. He gets elevated to be co-high priest with Abiathar because David elevated him, which gives reason for Abiathar to be a little jealous, right? Because he should be the only high priest, but he has to share the roles. Um, 2 Samuel 15. 
the sons of Zadok are the ones that get mentioned in Ezekiel as serving at the heavenly millennial temple or kingdom. So when we get to the millennial age, it's, it's the sons of Zadok that are going to be the high priests at the temple, not the sons of Abiathar or even of Aaron. So it's really the blessing goes with Zadok, and that's another reason Abiathar might be jealous. Then you get Benaiah. Benaiah, remember, when David, when Joab was doing the weird stuff with David, he split the army. There's the main army under Joab, and then there's the royal guard, the, the mighty men that are under Benaiah. So he splits the role of the, the high general with Joab and Benaiah. Well, Abi, Adonijah picks one and leaves the other out of the party. Okay, so here's a promise that you won't have to share your roles anymore. That's a pretty big promise if you're trying to get a kingdom. Then you get Shimei. He's the guy that kicked dirt at David on the road, right? And he's forgiven by David, but this shows that this guy really has changed. Why would you not invite Shimei to the party? Because this guy's loyal to David. That's amazing. The grace and mercy. Remember, like, they were saying, we'll go kill that guy for you, and David's like, no, he... He's doing what the Lord's called him to do. Says something about David's ability to forgive, but then the natural response to forgiveness is this loyalty that this guy sticks with David. And he's not even invited to the party, so he's publicly sticking with David. And then you get the name Re. Nowhere else in the Bible does that name pop up. So whoever this guy is, he's one of the nameless, loyal, godly people that we never get to know more about. So we can get to heaven, and you can go to the heavenly libraries, and you could say, I'd like to read about this character named Re, because there's no mention anywhere else in the Bible. But I imagine this guy's got a pretty good story. So then you get the mighty men. The mighty men stick with David even when he leaves the kingship when Absalom does his rebellion. So Adonijah's not even going to try to get that group because he knows exactly what they're going to do when he takes over the kingship. The problem is the mighty men are probably the most elite fighters in the country right now. They're the crack. They're the Marines. They're the ones you send into an actual fight not just when you're showing a display of force when you siege a city. These are the people that get into the combat. So he's not even trying for them. They know where their allegiances are going to lie, which says with this, I'll invite you but not you, that Adonijah is well aware that David still captures the loyalty of people even from his sickbed, even from this bed he's going to die on. And this idea that Adonijah knows darn well that he's going against his father's will because he's picking and choosing who comes to the party. So I think that's assumed when the writer's telling us about this selective party invitation. Then you get to verse 11. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba. Wait, the last time Nathan was involved, he was going after David because of Bathsheba. So again, we can see that clearly these two are friends now. Nathan never had an issue with Bathsheba. He had an issue with David's treatment of her. But Bathsheba seems to be an honorable enough woman to have gotten a pretty high place at court by the time we get to the end of David's life. That says something about her character. It also says something about Nathan's character, that these two, go, they talk to each other and they, they do it. Nathan was the guy that was in tune with God in that whole situation. He's in tune with God in this situation. He's the prophet. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Come, please, let me now give you advice that you may save your own life in the life of your son Solomon. This is why this is, I say this is a death sentence. Nathan assumes that not getting the invitation is a death threat. Like he treats it that way because in the ancient world that's exactly what that was. Verse 13, 
Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Then while you're still talking there with the king, I'll come in after you and confirm your words. This sounds really manipulative, but think of the impact this is good. This is happening quick. Like there wasn't an advance announcement of the party. It was, it's happening fairly fast. We see that through a couple indicators. David doesn't know about it, so it's happening fast. And then in verse 13, it says, go immediately to the king. We have to stop this now. So Adonijah's called the feast. The meat is on the barbecue, like things are getting ready, and they're moving. This is quick court intrigue. Everything's happening fairly fast. Um, so Solomon is in there, and we see the name Solomon pop up. First Kings is really about the story of Solomon, the whole first part of it. Solomon's name is actually Shalomo which is a name version of the word shalom, which means peace, peace be unto you. So we see peace, shalom, being brought into the situation in the middle of kind of a chaotic situation. They're trying to bring peace. So David isn't really in touch in his old age, verse 15. He's a king in title, but he has other people doing the work of the kingdom, like somebody else is putting stuff into the teleprompter, and then he just reads it out loud, and people prop him up a little bit. So he's an old king, he's not really with it, he's not knowing what's going on around him, and people still adore him and, and want to know that things are going to go well in the kingdom. So David did this promise to Bathsheba. It's recorded in 1 Chronicles 22. When we see it at this point in the Bible, we haven't really read that anywhere. So you got to kind of read forward at this point to see where that promise was made. What we can take from this text without Chronicles is there's an assumption that David has spoken this amongst his friends, that Solomon should be king. But he hasn't made a proclamation. He hasn't put it in writing. So before that happens, you got Adonijah saying, I'm going to make my move before David can do all that. And David can't stop me anyways because he's bedridden, right? So David made this promise to Bathsheba, um, and they're going to kind of call him in on that. The idea of, I will come in after you. Uh, Old Testament law says you, a thing isn't certain until you've heard it from two witnesses. So what Nathan's doing here is actually following the law. He's going to hear this report from Bathsheba. He's going to follow in immediately and give the same report. And that's going to be that David hears it from two witnesses, two different sources. And now it becomes a thing David should take his time with. So verse 15, Bathsheba went into the chamber to the king, which tells you her status. Like one thing when David was a king in a cave, it was pretty informal and people just talked to David. But now that we see that she goes into the chamber to the king, the king was very old, and Abishag, the Shunammite, was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. And then the king said, what is your wish? We see indicators of very common behavior in a throne room. And this is actually happening in a bedroom. So David's informal reign early in his life, throughout the course of his lifetime, has become a very formalized kingdom and kingship. And even his wife treats him as a king when she approaches him as a king. So it's kind of interesting like how in one lifetime you went from not really having an organized kingdom to people treating David with very formal, you know, coming before someone, bowing before them, and all those kind of traditions are in place. Verse 17, then she said to him, my Lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne. So now look, again, the immediacy of it. Look at what's happening. 
Adonijah's become king, and now, my lord, the king, you don't know about it. You're, you're clueless. He has sacrificed oxen and the fattened calf and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he has not invited. David and Joab have had a friction-filled relationship their whole lives. So notice that he saves Joab till last, and Joab's there. David, you know when Joab gets something in his head, he does stuff against your will. He'll do it for the benefit of Israel in his head, but he, he will break your word in a second if he thinks it's better for Israel. So I, he saves Joab till last, and he's not invited your servant Solomon. He's going to kill your son, David. This is serious. You need to deal with it. And as for you, my Lord, O King, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of the Lord, the King, after him. Otherwise, it will happen. And when my Lord, the King, rests with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. David, if you don't do something, if you don't act, then it's going to happen this way. This is what's shaping up. So unless you get out of that bed one last time, Get it together, David, for one more kingly thing and put Solomon on that throne. If you don't react, we're going to die. And that's not what he wills. It's not what God wills. So just then, verse 22, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. This is the plan, right? And they told the king saying, here is Nathan the prophet. Again, formal etiquette going on. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord, O king, notice that he acts the same way that Bathsheba did. There is a formal kind of interaction that they've got established. Have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? That's a rhetorical question. Nathan knows darn well that David never said that. So he's coming in with a rhetorical question. Did you say Adonijah should be king? And the answer to that, of course, is no, he never said that. Verse 25, for he's gone down today, sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance. And he's invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priests. And look, like you can see it happening out your window, David. See the smoke over by Enrogel? They're having a feast over there, putting Adonijah on the throne. And they're eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, me your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Like this is the kill list, David. They're going to take us out. Has this thing been done by my lord the king? Have you done this, David? Did you make this happen? And have, and have you not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So Nathan and David have had conversations. You've said, we know what you want, David. But what you want is not happening right now. And being on this, I know you love Abishag. She's dynamite. But you got to not get so excited about your nurse for just a little bit, David. One more thing you got to do. We assume that they're close. Again, this says something about David. Just, I love David. Nathan's the guy that runs into the room and says, you are defying God's will by doing this thing to Uriah, the Hittite and Bathsheba. Last time we saw Nathan, he was rebuking David. And look at the closeness of friendship that they have years later. As a king, Saul was rebuked, and he would kill or push people away from him. David gets rebuked, and he draws that person in like a true friend. Strong-willed people, you've got to have strong-willed friends. Because strong-willed people will railroad. And you've got to have friends that can rebuke you, and you keep them close. And they can hear that rebuke, and they can be blessed by it. So Nathan's 
polite but direct, verse 24, 27, but he's fairly forceful in addressing this with David. David, this is a big deal. People are going to die if you don't do something here. So verse 27, Nathan comes in and essentially says, I just want to check, David, is this your order or is Adonijah off on his own right now? Did you make this happen? I think that's a nice thing to do when you're dealing with leadership where it appears like leadership's made a decision because you got people running around and doing stuff. Assuming the best of your leader and saying, I just want to check, is this stuff over here you're doing or are they on their own doing this? And I think Nathan comes in with that. I think Nathan knows darn well what's going on, but it's a very graceful way to present something to a king. Verse 28, then King David answered and said, call Bathsheba to me. So apparently Bathsheba stepped out when Nathan came in. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king and the king took an oath. Well, that's serious because you're not supposed to take oaths unless you keep them. So he takes an oath and he says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel saying, assuredly Solomon, your son shall be king after me. He shall sit on my throne in my place. So certainly I will do this day. If you're going to make an oath, keep it. Keep it as quickly as you can. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, let my lord King David live forever. That sounds almost like irony as he's kind of, he can't even stay warm at night. So clearly she's not talking about physical life living forever, but she is thinking of this eternal life that David's been promised. So may my, the lord king live forever. You're doing the right thing. In certainly doing it today, that means David's going to move fast. So here's this old college codger that for once can be as good as he ever was. May not be as good as he once was, but for once he can be... I always mess that up. Verse 32. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoi. He calls in the team. So they came before the king and the king said to them, You can almost kind of like see David sitting up in his bed propping up the pillows. Okay, let's get busy. And the old guy gets moving again. Something stirs him to life. <clears throat> what stirs him to life is the duties of the kingship, not the very beautiful Ad like Abishag the Shunammite. Isn't that interesting? Because what stirred David in his younger years was women. But as he's in these older years, it's, he's tending to the kingdom before he tends to himself. He's definitely ending the right way. So they came before the king. The king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon the son ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. This is before horses were popularized in the Middle East. It dates the text to right around when the Bible says this happened. Mules were super expensive because Jewish people weren't supposed to interbreed the animals. So they, if they were going to get an interbred mule, a, a horse and a donkey, then they had to bring that mule in from another country. So they're very expensive and primarily used just for kings but they weren't exactly speedy racehorses. Let, let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. Verse 35. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Interesting that it says in Israel and Judah. Like there was already a mental split between the regions but there's still one kingdom at this point. So David has a five-point plan. Each of those points are basically saying that this person's going to be king, not the little private party Adonijah's having with all the rich people, 
right? So ride my own mule. Mules were owned by the king. They're extremely valuable. By riding David's mule, if you did that and you didn't have the approval of the king, that's actually a death sentence. So if Solomon's going to ride the mule and not be killed by the king, it means that he has the permission of the king, even if the king isn't there. So David doesn't have to go down to Gihon. He can sit in his bed because he's invalid. But riding the mule says that the king is behind this. Anoint him. That elevates Zadok to the high priest position because he's not, at this point, when he has Zadok doing this anointing, that makes Zadok the high priest, even if he takes on that role. So that means that he has the permission of the priest and the prophet, Zadok and Nathan. So he's got the king's permission with the mule. The anointing is the priest and the prophet's uh, permission to be king. Blow the horn gathers the people. So the people are going to gather around and see this. When God's people move, it's out in public. Like Adonijah's back doing things in secret, manipulating, trying to get angles on things, working behind David's back. But God's people just out in front and in public. They announce it. They blow the horn. Everybody knows what's going on. In fact, they're going to hear the horn back at the feast. So those horns are pretty loud. Like you, the whole valley hears this. Long live King Solomon, a public proclamation and agreement of who's king. All of this can be applied to Jesus, right? Those anointings, those pieces, those are all evidences extremely public. And then he, he assumes the role by sitting on the throne, which is because David's bedridden, nobody's in the throne chamber. So when Solomon comes back from this and places himself on the throne with everybody seeing him doing it, Adonijah doesn't have much hope. Like this is going to be done and over. Look at how quick David moves when he knows to move. Look at how wisely he moves when he knows what to do. Gihon is uh, bursting forth in the Hebrew. Uh, this is something that's going to be he, out in the open, working in the light. The Gihon spring is the spring that feeds Jerusalem. It's the fresh water in the area. It's where the priests would go wash before they did sacrifices. It is a public gathering area being the fresh water source in there. It's not a, a feast thing over in, El, in Rogel, right? It's right where the people would be in Israel. So he goes out, public proclamation. Verse 36. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen! May the Lord my God, may the Lord God of my Lord the king say so too. As the Lord has been with the Lord my king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. Ben, I, Benaiah, like, is a general. You have to, like, know the personality of a general. This is, like, the stoic, manly man. You're going to lead people into battle. There, there's a certain air of confidence that has to come from a leader. Like, if you think of the personality of a general. So when he exclaims amen, it's like he's been waiting for David to do this for months. And it, he can't even contain himself. It's the first time in the whole story that somebody speaks out of turn according to the the protocol of a throne room. Everybody else does everything proper. This Benaiah guy is this old codger army leader going, amen. It's about time, David, you step up and do your thing here. This had to happen. So the tone of amen there is one that should be read as joy. It's an outburst. Like he can't contain himself. And I love that when he can't contain himself, he puts it back on the Lord God. Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord, the King, say so too. May God be in what you're doing, David, because this Adonijah punk, he's not ready for a kingship. And as a leader of men, Benaniah just sees what's going on here, and he trusts that Solomon can be a king. Adonijah should not be a king. I think it's interesting that we see in the church too, 
And we often don't respect it, but mature believers recognize when people are maturing in their faith and they're coming into their spiritual gifts. And it's important for us to recognize that we are here to teach one another and admonish one another. So when people go off and do things on their own, like Adonijah, that's often not a good situation. But when people are working in the faith and checking in with other believers, then you get the veterans that go, amen, it's about time we did this. I'm glad you saw this because I've seen it for months. I know you've got that gift. It's totally in your heart. And the fact that you're going to do something with it, that's just awesome. And I think that that's what's going on here with Benaniah. He recognizes Solomon's a class act. And it's about time David puts him on the throne. So David's going to abdicate his throne. This is where we got the idea when they established the presidency. What would it look like if in a country, when somebody's done being president, they abdicate the throne willingly? And there's no conflict and war in the transition of power. So when the founding fathers set up a presidency, they did it with this model. Let's not have combat every time we switch leadership. Let's have a peaceful transition of power. It's one of the earmarks of, of the United States and what kind of has been added to world history is this whole idea of peaceful transitions. They're very rare prior to, especially prior to David, but they're fairly rare. So David's going to give the power of the kingship over to Solomon before he actually dies. And if you think about how significant that is in world history, this is pretty amazing. Usually the king dies and then the sons all fight each other and kill each other and somebody comes to the top. But we're not going to do that. They're going to follow the Lord. Verse 38. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and they took him to Gihon. They carry out the plan. Then Zadok the priest took the horn. The word, there's actually an article there the horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn and all the people said, long live Solomon. When they say the horn, that means they're taking the horn out of the tabernacle. And that's pretty significant because now you're bringing in an instrument of God. What happens when you mishandle an implement of God from the tabernacle? We know from, is it Uzzah, Uzziah? Like God zaps people when they mishandle those artifacts. They're symbols of God's love for Israel. You don't mess with them. So when they take the horn and bring it down for this anointing and nobody gets killed in the process, that's God saying, I'm all over this. And this is, I approve of this too. So they take the horn and they do it. They blow the horn. All the people say, long live Solomon. So they're shouting and they're yelling. It's a big deal. They're not looking for a handout of, of the, the feast. These are all the people that didn't get invited to the world's feast. right? All the people that the world left behind are now going to gather and get behind Solomon. And the, all the people went up after him. They follow him, big procession. And the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy. David had to hear this from his window and just be so blessed in his heart so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. They make a loud noise, just like that. And the whole, the, the earth, the things shake and move. So from David on, like this song being part of the celebration at the end of his life, he's the guy that added that to the priesthood. He assigned the musicians in the tabernacle. So it's kind of cool that this is part of what he hears as he's fading. David acts quickly. He moves quickly. Before the feast is even over, David's got this taken care of. Now, Adonijah, (laughs) they're up having their private feast, And they can hear what's going on in Jerusalem. That's how fast David moved. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it, and they finished, as as they finished eating, 
And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, why is the city in such a noisy uproar? It's interesting that Joab's the guy that gets what's happening. Oh, what's going on? And he's the one that speaks up. He's savvy, that Joab. 42, while he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest. And Adonijah came and said to him, come in, for you're a prominent man, and you bring good news. We get the character of Adonijah. You can come into the feast because you're prominent. You're special. So you must have something that I need to hear that's good. Right? So hold up. There's an issue here. Adonijah reveals that he cares more about prominence than about a godly heart. And then verse 43, Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, No, our Lord, (laughs) no, I'm not bringing good news. (laughs) Sorry, this isn't good news for you, but you need to know what's happening. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. He's done it. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehodiah, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they've made him ride on the king's mule. Buddy, everybody you left out of the party just decided to make their kingdom. I think this is just great. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they've gone up from there rejoicing so that the city's in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. He's hearing it from a distance. He's not in on the party. It would have been a lot better to be in on this party than to be left out. Also, Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. So he gives him point by point everything that David thought would have impact. And in fact, it has impact. And the moreover... The king's servants have gone to bless our Lord, King David, saying, may the Lord make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. And then the king bowed himself on the bed. David bowed to Solomon, right? He abdicates the throne, and now he has to bow to Solomon. Really powerful sentiment. The king's servants have gone on to bless our Lord, King David, saying, may God make the name of Solomon better. They bless King David by blessing his son. This is an interesting image, right? The way we bless the father is to celebrate the son. And they're one and the same. It's the same idea. I can bless the son or or celebrate the son and be blessing the father at the same time. And in this case, so we get an image of what a messianic kingship looks like. David isn't so prideful that he has to cling to leadership. When Absalom tried to steal the throne, he just left Jerusalem, remember? He doesn't need leadership. He'll take it if God gives it to him, but he's not pining for it. But when, this, it, when Adonijah tries to do the exact same thing, he has a different response than just walking away this time. This time he says, I don't need to be king, but I can put Solomon on that throne. I can use my power in a way that's good. So Jonathan's speaking as an eyewitness. He seems to have seen it. He's been there. And also Solomon sits on the throne as an emphatic, saying this is done. Um, Jonathan knows that Adonijah's intent here was to be a king. So when he says, no, this is bad news, there's another king, it's very clear what Adonijah was doing and what his intents were. All the key points get reported, and we have to get that. You know, one question for us is, how many key points do we need to know that Jesus is on the throne? And honestly, like, if someone came up to us and said, you know, Jesus did this, he died on a cross, he rose for our sins, he taught his disciples to t- teach and minister and, and disciple other people. He's, he's claimed the high priesthood. He's claimed the kingship and the throne of David. How many times do we need evidences that Jesus is king before we actually bow to him and serve him? And it's a good question to ask out of this chapter. 
How many points of evidence do we need before we're ready, ready to give our life to the new king? And you get Jonathan coming in and sharing all this with Adonijah, and Adonijah responds. But first, verse 48, And also the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has given one, given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes see it. David actually celebrates that he gets to see Solomon sit on the throne. So all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose and each one went his way. If you're following the wrong king, you should be afraid. That's bad. If you're with the right king that God's anointed, you shouldn't be afraid at all. You're, you're in that kingdom. So now they become marked Everything Adonijah was trying to do to the lower people gets flipped on him. Now the lower people have decided the last are going to be first because God's putting us on the throne. And now those people that were prideful and haughty, they are now afraid. And it all flipped on them. I think the same thing happened with Jesus with the cross and with resurrection. Everything flipped. And the haughty people that thought they were in charge just lost everything. So Adonijah's fair-weather friends all leave him. Each one went his own way. They're just gone. We're, you guys, you're now in rebellion against the new king, and we're not going to be with you anymore. That says that maybe Adonijah was somewhat deceptive by gathering these people under other terms. Does that make sense? And Absalom was the same way. Remember, he gathered the people of the kingdom, and they didn't quite know why they were there. And so it seems to be that Adonijah maybe thought he had stronger friends than he did. Verse 50. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. So he arose, he went, and this is really interesting. We'll end on this at the end of the night here. He went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For look, he's taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. That tells us something about the ancient world. Rebelling against the king was a death sentence. And spiritually, it's the same today. Full rebellion against Jesus, that's a death sentence. So the only hope you have is what Adonijah does. It's a common idea that holy places are sanctuaries. We still even have that in horror movies today, right? If evil's everywhere, you run to the, the holy place and you stay there because that's sanctuary. Nobody can hurt you when you're in this building, right? And the same thing was true in the ancient world. He runs to the tabernacle, takes hold of the horns of the altar, um, it's a slightly different image with Hebrews. So let me walk through this a little bit. The altar had a sin offering on it. So this is the place where if you had sin, you'd bring in an animal, there'd be a sacrifice, and that animal died in your place. So it takes your sin. And that was an image of if you give something valuable to God, it shows repentance, it shows that you're, 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 you have the promise of forgiveness. So you do these things God said to do, you're forgiven. The altar then is takes the blood of that animal, Leviticus 4, 7, 18, 25, 30, 34. Moses did this, Leviticus 8, 15. You take the blood of the animal, you touch it with your finger, so the priests get, that's why they do cleansings beforehand, is that they're touching that very precious blood that died on your behalf, and they touch the horns of the altar. And horns in the ancient world were images of power. That goes all the way through the book of Revelation. So this image, this power of God is in the horns of the altar, and you touch the blood of the sacrifice to the horns, they would pour out the rest of the blood onto the ground as a, a blood offering. So the altar area got slippery, it was messy, it was dirty, it had to get cleaned up. And then they would take that blood and they would sprinkle it and spread it everywhere. That blood covers the altar. 
And in the covering of that altar, God's punishment goes on the animal and not on the person. That's the image that they had in Jewish tradition. There are a number of altars in Israel. We don't know which one that he runs to. There's one in Gibeon. There's the threshing floor of Aruna, where the tabernacle is. And then there's the big one in the tabernacle, right? So there's these little arcs at the corner of the altar. There's stone altars. But there's these little arcs that they put on the edges of them. They're the, they're the, uh, the horns. Beersheba today has an excavation, and they actually found a, Jew, a Jewish altar that still has the horns intact. So if you want, you can go online, look up the Beersheba archaeology, and you can look at those excavations, and they actually have an altar with the horns on it still. So in this case, Adonijah grabs. When it says he grabs him, he would likely be stretching himself out. So you'd grab one on one side of the altar and one on the other side of the altar, which tells you about how big an altar was. It's big enough to handle a sheep or an oxen. So you would grab those. You might have an image in your head where he's got both hands on one horn. That's possible too. Or he goes around the side, the short side of the altar, and he grabs both, one with each hand. Either way, it's the same idea of bowing before a king. You're only bowing before the altar of God. And you're putting yourself on the altar when you do it, which is an admission of sin. It's not putting a sheep in your place. Like the idea of the punishment of sin is death. So when you go to the altar and put yourself on it, you're basically saying, I'm guilty, I deserve this. Maybe Adonijah wasn't so horrible as we think. Maybe he thought, my dad's getting old and he's not doing anything about this, so maybe I just need to step up. And he starts taking that path to stepping up, and he realizes that's not what his dad wanted. He's out of sync with God's will here. Everything's God's approved Solomon, and I need to get on good terms with the new king or I'm on the death list. So if I'm going to die anyways, I might as well beg for forgiveness. So he runs to the altar, he grabs the horns, basically saying, I know I've done wrong and I deserve to be killed on this altar. So he's begging for forgiveness. He's doing that, and the only reason you do that is if you know you're guilty. And here's the other thing. The world sees the sanctuary as like there's a rule. You can't get hurt if you run to sanctuary. If I go to the city of refuge, I can't be hurt. That's never been the case in Jewish law. Exodus 21, 14. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint you a place where he may flee, cities of refuge, an altar, right? So the Jewish traditions kind of mix those together. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, then you shall take him from my altar that he may die. A city of refuge does not guarantee that you won't be killed for your crimes. If you're found guilty, the law still applies even at a city of refuge, even at an altar. So Adonijah is running to the altar. Remember, um, we had other people that ran away when they, were, they should have been running to a city of refuge, like Absalom, he ran to another country. Adonijah doesn't make the same mistake. He, does it, he runs to the altar. He runs to the place where he can get mercy. So I think that's interesting. He's not as bad as Absalom was, caught in the same situation. So it's a strong indicator that David's lack of leadership was getting his sons to do dumb things again. Then verse 52, Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar, and he came and fell down before King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, go to your house. Go home. Don't be a problem. This makes Solomon's first act as a king an act of peace and an act of mercy. The very first thing that he does is he forgives. 
And he hands that forgiveness off to somebody who's purely guilty, knows that he's guilty, runs for forgiveness, and the king says, I'll give you a conditional pass. If you're not a problem anymore, then I know your heart, this was all a big accident. But boy, if you continue down this road of thinking you're a king and pretending you're a king, if you want to assume that role, then I have the right to, with, to actually execute the punishment here. This is an amazing act of mercy. Again, in the ancient world, new kings kill their opponents. So Solomon leaves his clear adversary alive even though he doesn't have to. And again, I just if you really appreciate what God's doing in history here, he's making the rules for Messiah that we deserve death as a consequence of sin, and Messiah comes in and says, I can bring mercy to that situation, and he does. 2.23, (laughs) um, you could look for it if you want to, and Adonijah screws it all up. We'll get to this next week, Um, and Solomon follows up on this saying, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life, I think this is really like, we're starting to see the pattern of salvation coming out here and what this looks like specifically. What Solomon says he'll do, he's going to do it. Take him seriously as a king. He says, if you cross this line, there's no coming back from that. And so when Adonijah crosses the line in the next chapter, it's Adonijah that sends himself to punishment. You spoke, you spoke a word against your own life. I told you the rules, and then you went your own way. So now i got to follow up as a king. And I think this is an important theological principle. Um, God doesn't send people to hell. That's a mistaken image that we have. Why would a good and holy God punish people and send them to hell? He doesn't do that. And the principle is established here. We send ourselves to hell by rejecting the mercy of the king. We live our own way, do our own thing. We're heading to hell. And it's not because God sent us there. It's because he said, if you live like you say you're going to live, I'll give you mercy. Just go to your own house. Go home. Take care of your family. Do the things that I've called you to do in life, and you're fine. He promises salvation to those that accept it. And for those that don't accept it, or they're continuing to selfishly try to do their own thing, there's a line for that. And God's given his word, and he's going to keep his word. So we give, we give testimony against ourselves. So when he says to Adonijah, go to your house, he's basically saying, go live out your days and stop pretending that you're a king. Like for a young Solomon to sit on the throne day one to say something like that, Solomon's a powerful individual. And what he says from the throne, he means, and he's going to keep it in the next chapter, don't keep playing at court, brother. Go home, tend to your family, tend to your life, and if you do this stuff again, you're making your own death sentence. So Solomon takes the judgment role, puts it back on the person. God does the same thing with us. You have a choice to make. God's laid out the rules. You can choose to follow the Lord, or you can choose to follow yourself. And one path leads to destruction, one path leads to mercy. Take your pick. But again, that role of deciding where we're going to go for eternity it gets put back on the person, just like Solomon puts it on Adonijah. He gives him mercy. I think this is really godly, and I think it's really gracious that a good and just God reserves the right to put the decision back on us because he doesn't force our hand. We have free will, and we have a decision to make. So we can live God's way, or we can do it our own way. It's our choice. Hebrews 3.8, we're in Hebrews in the mornings. 
Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't get, don't get yourself all stubborn about this point. Soften your hearts to it. Okay, I got to receive what God has to say for my life. I don't come to Bible study because I just want to prove to myself how holy I am. I come to Bible study because I want to hear God's word. And I need it every week. I need it more than once a week. Right? And you come to Bible study with that soft heart so we don't harden our heart against the fact that we have a choice to make every day we wake up. How are we going to live our life today? And how are we going to do it? So he falls down before King Solomon. He rightly understands how merciful this is. Adonijah gets it. This is total mercy. And he totally accepts the gift from Solomon. And he totally welcomes this gift of mercy that Solomon's giving. But he screws it up later on because his heart hasn't changed. So he's thankful for not being killed, but he's not grateful to the king enough to serve him and, be, and go back to his house. It actually makes Adonijah the first person in history to bow to King Solomon. So you could say David bowed in his bed, so he's the first one, and Adonijah becomes the first citizen that kind of bows to Solomon, which is interesting because he's Solomon's enemy. So now Solomon's king, we are one chapter in, and we have Solomon on the throne, and we get to see his kingship. So we'll get to know Solomon over the next nine chapters. Uh, well, ten chapters if you count kind of that chapter 11, that nasty chapter 11 that we'll get to. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to move from David to Solomon. Uh, I hope it's been a tr peaceful transition for us. Uh, and Lord, we continue to see just the way in which you have uh, put your fingerprint of your plan on each of these stories. Uh, we can see the connections that are there. We can see the principles that are established. And we know that you've prepared the Jewish people to recognize their Messiah because they can see all these patterns. So Lord, we thank you for Solomon, the life that he lived, the lessons we can learn from it. Uh, may you be with us as we're in the book of Kings. May you bless us in that journey. Lord, I pray for each person in the room tonight, each person listening to this teaching. Lord, may you bless them. May their hearts be filled with joy and not dread. May they know that they have your mercy and live a life accordingly. Lord, may you bless our families, bless our friends, bless those that we know that we're praying for because we know people that are going after their own kingship and they're king of their own life. So we pray you bring people into the kingdom, uh, that they can follow you in love and grace and thankfulness for the mercy you've offered them. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.